On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Oliver Almond-Smith about his brand new book, Under God and Over the People. So we cover all sorts of topics like what in the world does this book mean? What does it mean for the civil government to be answerable to God? What does it mean for the civil government to be called by God? What does it mean for the civil government to be empowered by God? Is the civil government a nursing father? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. But we want to do that serious thinking with what we think are a particular set of intellectual virtues that go along with it, because we can't just we can't be serious thinkers if we just uh, know a lot of stuff. We also have to be virtuous thinkers because that's what we think the Christian tradition and the scriptures require of us. So we've sort of highlighted a couple of them, not everything, but this I think gets at the heart of some of the things that we want to emphasize, which is charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, a cheerful confessionalism. I realize not all of our listeners are confessional, but we think that you should be and that if you listen long enough that you will be because you'll find that there's a great home uh, for you there. And we want to be cheerful about it. So we don't want to be curmudgeons. I guess that's another C. We could have five C's here, but we don't want to be curmudgeons. We want to be cheerful about what we confess. Now today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all uh, to Oliver Almond Smith, who's an elder at Trinity Grace Church in Manchester in the United Kingdom. And I'm pumped about this because he's got this new book called Under God, Over the People. And it's a tremendously helpful uh, book because it's, it, first off, it's, I think it's right on, uh, but second off, it's written in such a way that you could use this for your local church. So I know in my American context, questions of civil government, the civil authorities, what role do they have, how do they play, are becoming more and more important and more and more common. And having resources like this to help people think through how should we understand it, particularly for us with in relation to the Second London Confession of Faith, is something that's sorely needed. So I'll link to this in the show notes so you can get a copy of it. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's what? It's 108 pages is the total amount. So, I mean, you can digest this with your church, which is an awesome resource. So, Oliver, before we get started, give me a little bit of background about you. Um, I want to know about you. But then I also want to know what was it that really encouraged you to write this particular book? Thanks very much for your introduction. I like all your C's. Um, you could add a few more, covenantal, creedal, canonical. I mean, you could go on forever with C's, couldn't you? Um, but so glad to hear, Jordan, that you, you're seeking to be confessional. Of course, my particular book is, is, is written explicitly out of its confessional context, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, I'm obviously, you can tell from my accent, I'm not uh, from the States. I'm from the UK and um, I've been ministering here in North Manchester for 25 years, I think now. Um, the church here is Trinity Grace Church. And uh, we had the privilege of adopting the Second London as our confession some 10 years ago now. And we've been in a process of reformation uh, throughout this period. I was converted when I was 17 by God's wonderful sovereign grace. He just pulled me out of a mess 
um, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And since then, I've stumbled here and drifted there, but he's kept his hand on me and been gracious to me. And uh, I was 27 when I received the call to the ministry and then 28 when I became minister, I think, here, or 27. I lose track. I'm married to Alison. We have six kids. Our eldest is 25. Uh, our youngest is 12. Um, we rejoice that uh, the five older children, we have six children, um, are baptized, members of the church, walking with the Lord. And we're just uh, working through things with our youngest Isaac at the moment, God willing to that end. So we're very thankful. God is kind and merciful. And uh, we rejoice to be serving him in this capacity here. Very awesome. So tell me a little bit, uh, just give me the, it, was there a moment that you realized, I need to write a book on this? Was this something that you had been stewing on for years? Or was this sort of just a strike of lightning and it came down and you were just writing it all in the matter of a couple of weeks? I mean, what does this look, is this a, a lifelong thought process that's going through this, that's encouraging this? Um, thanks for the question, Jordan. N none of the above. Um, basically, it simply comes out of a combination of two things. One, teaching through the confession. So I'd already taught through the confession once when we were considering it between 2008, 2012. And then I taught through it a second time. Um, and then when the um, COVID-19 crisis, as I call it, hit us and lockdowns were um, enforced here in the UK, we were like everybody really in a state of confusion. You know, how do we respond to this? We didn't see this coming. Uh, what does the Bible say? And people just kept saying Romans 13, Romans 13, Romans 13. And oh, it wasn't helpful. So we said, well, we're a confessional church. So what should we do? We should look at our confession, not because the confession is over scripture, but because confession is under scripture as uh, chapter one, paragraph one makes extremely clear. And uh, it, but it gives us the whole counsel of God. So we thought we need to study our confession in a little more detail concerning this particular subject. So we just we just grabbed hold of Second London uh, chapter 24 and we studied it. That was in September of 2020 when we were in the middle of, of the confusion, just trying to work out what to do. And we found it so helpful as a church uh, and uh, many folks seem to be tremendously blessed. And to be honest, it, it probably was key to the preservation of our unity in the church. I think as in many, many churches, uh, opinions were very polarized on this matter. Should we lock down? Should we not? Should we mask up? Should we not? Should we sing? Should we not? And all that kind of thing. And just coming to the confession really brought us together, unified us, um, brought us under God and, and his scriptures and, and helped us so much. And, and then as a result of that, that's really what the book came out of. So you mentioned earlier on, it's useful for churches. Well, that's where it's come from. It's just come out of uh, ourselves here in the church, wanting to teach and guide the church through very, very difficult times. And, um, so that's why hopefully it is pastoral and practical and helpful to folk. Well, that's encouraging to hear that it was also a source of unity. I mean, I've heard from countless pastors that COVID and all that's come from it has been a massive source of disunity. So if there's a resource that can help 
unite people, I think then that's another reason to check it out. So you've got five chapters in here, but the first three are related to the civil government, and you've sort of categorized it as answerable to God, called by God, and empowered by God. So maybe we just start a little bit with what does it mean for the civil government to be answerable to God? Yeah, so basically and with these three headings, we're expounding paragraph one of chapter 24 of Second London which reads, God, the supreme Lord and king of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. That's the first um, part of it. And uh, really, so when we say that the civil government is answerable to God, what we're saying is that civil government receives its authority from God, who is sovereign and almighty and that they will answer to God for how they use the authority God has given to them. Now, this is particularly important for Christians uh, because we, of course, are under God primarily. Uh, And any other authority structure, whether it be in the civil realm or in the family. So, you know, we're under um, parents or fathers in the family or whether it's in marriage a wife is under her husband or whether it's in the church, uh, a member is under the elders. All of these authority structures are, are in place because God has ordained them. So the, the, the first thing for both those who have the authority and those who are under that authority to grasp is that this is from God. So why do I, as a citizen, submit to the civil authority to the government, not because it's been duly elected, not because it's gone through due process, not because it's worthy, not because it's proven itself, not because it's deserved it, not because it's it's fought against an enemy and defeated an enemy and seized it. None of those reasons, but because God has appointed them. And, and if we begin there, then we're beginning in the right place. All authority in the civil realm, as in all other realms, is under God, as it says here, under God, over the people. So we we acknowledge that the authorities are answerable to God. And that helps us enormously then because we recognize that they're not answerable to us. So they don't have to do what we tell them to do, but they do answer to God and we answer to God as well. So everybody answers to God. We're all under God. And it just helps us to get in the right place in relation uh, to those civil authorities before we begin. We submit to the authorities because we submit to Christ and Christ has appointed those authorities over us. Very, very helpful. So then what does it mean that they are called by God? Is this similar to how we would think of a minister being called to the ministry of the gospel? What, what does that look like exactly? Yeah, I appreciate the parallel uh, there, Jordan, and that's helpful because what we're driving at here under the section called by God is that since they've received their authority from God, the God who gives them authority also gives them their calling. Authority doesn't come without rules. It comes with rules. And the authorities, i.e. the civil government in this case, doesn't make the rules. God makes the rules. In other words, God decides what the civil authority should and should not be doing. And as we have it in our confession of faith, 
they are to, as we read, defend and encourage them that do good and punish evildoers. So this is the calling of, of the civil authorities. Um, under this heading, I think it, it, it's a cause of tremendous confusion amongst many Christians. What is the civil government there for? You know, what, what, what are they supposed to be doing? Are they supposed to be educating our kids? Are they, are they supposed to be making us all healthy? Is the primary responsibility of civil authority to make us all rich? No. Uh, now, that's not to say, as I point out in the book, that these things don't play a part. They may well play a part. Uh, a, a healthy citizenry, insofar as the government can facilitate that, which is pretty limited, but insofar as they can facilitate that, will tend to be more law-abiding than an unhealthy one, or and so on. So you could argue that there's a secondary role there, but the primary function of the civil authority is to encourage them that do good and to punish evildoers. In other words, their job is justice and peace, as it says in the second paragraph, law and order, we would say. So righteousness, truth, law and order, justice, the defense of the good, the promotion of the good and the punishment of the wicked, that is the role of civil government. And this is so important for Christians in a democracy where they have the right to cast a vote. What are you going to cast your vote on? Uh, and it's not as one um, pr uh, president, I think, once said, it's the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, Christian. It's not. It's it's justice. It's righteousness. It's the defense of the fatherless and the widow. It's the it's the promotion of the good and the punishment of the wicked. That that is what the civil authority is there for. And as Christians, we've got to be absolutely crystal clear on that. Um, another aspect of this is that that in our culture, the civil authority has far too much power that when the civil authority starts reaching into issues of education, issues of family life, uh, is issues of uh, community life and interfering and intervening in areas where they have no uh, jurisdiction, th this, this is a massive problem. Uh, and Christians need to understand that it's not the role of, of civil government to... Uh, to interfere in these areas. Hmm. So that's, I think that raises a whole bunch of questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold on to those for a, a follow-up question that I have that I think goes well with. So I do want to s s finish up this sort of section on the civil government that you've got here on being empowered by God. What does it mean that they are empowered by God? Yeah. So as we have again here to this end, uh, chapter 24, paragraph one, he has armed them with the power of the sword. And this, again, is something which is much misunderstood in our culture and even by Christians, that God has given the sword to the civil authority. Now, he hasn't given it to the individual. He hasn't given it to families. He hasn't given it to communities and he hasn't given it to the church. He's given the sword to the civil authorities. So it's getting the right context in which the right authority is exercised and the sword has been given to those in uh, civil government. So the civil government then is responsible for wielding that sword. Now, it's important, as I point out in the book, 
to remember when the sword came into human history. Of course, it wasn't there in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, was it? The first mention of sword is, is, is the uh, cherubim who wield the flaming sword at the gates of Eden. And then tragically, we have Cain wielding, quotes, a sword against Abel. Uh, and finally, in Genesis 9, we have this phrase, when the, when the blood of man is shed by man, shall his blood be shed. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. So here we have it. God has given to those in authority the sword. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. You can't miss it in the law of Moses. Uh, and then basically throughout the entire Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. Uh, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul, for example, uh, understands that the civil authority wields the sword justly and rightly. But it is for the punishment of evil. And remember, God decides what evil is. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, right and wrong is defined by the God of creation. You're a creature and you're under God. Whether you acknowledge him or not, you're under God. And the civil authorities, as we've said, are under God. So that which they should be punishing is that which is evil in God's sight. They should punish the abortionist. They should punish the oppressor. They should punish the one who takes bribes in civil office. They should punish the abuser as well as the murderer and so on and so on. And they should defend the fatherless. They should defend the widow. They should defend the outcast. They should defend the, those, those who are disenfranchised, the poor, the silenced and so on in, in our society. This is, this is the role of civil government. And, and just as a final thing on the sword, when the civil authority wields the sword in this way, not only do they defend the, the, um, uh, the good and punish the wicked, but they also establish in, in God's overarching providence a principle in the, in the mind of the people that sin is punished. Now, one of the reasons why the gospel is so dissonant in many people's minds when they first hear it is because they have no, no concept of retributive justice. It's gone. If the civil authority is doing its job properly, you don't have to explain that evil is punished. So when you talk about God punishing sinners in hell forever, it, it becomes a natural extension of that. Tragically, we've lost that because those in authority over us don't wield the sword as they ought. And whenever they do, they wield it in the wrong place. Again, as I point out in the book, every abortion is the, is the civil authority in the hospitals and in the abortion clinics wielding a sword in the form of a needle uh, against the most defenseless in our society. That is, that is the, to my mind, undoubtedly the greatest wickedness of our generation, of our culture. We've just reached the tragic figure of 10 million in the UK. 10 million defenseless uh, children in the womb slaughtered before they see the light of day. So that's the exact opposite of how God has ordained that the uh, civil authorities should be using the sword. Okay, that's helpful. So I do want to spend some time also on your chapter on a godly magistrate. I think all sorts of questions probably come into people's minds when they see that, especially Baptists thinking, do what is it? 
I mean, you need, I guess you need the specifics to know what is a godly magistrate look like? Does this end up meaning we want to have an established religion of sorts? And if, if it did mean that, is that something that's compatible with Baptist ecclesiology? Uh, so maybe just walk me through what you mean by godly magistrate and what you think that looks like in uh, real world, the real world. Yeah, Jordan. Well, again, I'm just going to take you back to the confession, which is a Baptist confession. So it kind of answers the question. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So it's very, very clear our Baptist fathers in the faith did not follow the radical Anabaptists in this and promote the idea of an opposition between the spiritual authorities and the civil authorities, as though the spiritual authorities are now to deny and defy the civil authorities because they are inherently wicked. Uh, and this is what then leads to to the, you know, the um, revolution and, and instability and anarchy and so on. On the contrary, our, our forefathers, even though they departed from the from the Presbyterians uh, in saying that there must be an absolute separation between the authority of uh, that is manifest in the church and the authority that is manifest in the civil realm. That doesn't mean to say that we deny the authority given to civil rulers. Chapter 24, paragraph one, as we've just seen, rules that out. But nor does it mean that it's wrong for a Christian believer, a Baptist, an independent, to become a, a part of the civil authority, to become a public servant. On the contrary, he can do that. But he does so as a citizen, not as an elder. He does so in his capacity as a citizen of the realm who is a Christian, rather than as somebody who brings his own inherent authority or mingles the authority of the church and the authority of the civil realm. The two are distinct, both under God, both under God and both over a people. The civil governor is over the entire citizenry, Christian and non-Christian. The, the, the elder is over the believing community. So we have that totally different understanding of our ecclesiology over against the Presbyterians who mingle and confuse the two. Um, we're not at all confused about that. So the godly magistrate then in, 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 in a biblical ecclesiology, which is a Baptist ecclesiology, um, is, is, is a man who or a woman who has entered into public service as a believer in Christ Jesus for the purpose that God has given civil authority, which is to maintain justice and peace, to reward the good and punish the evil. Now, the civil authorities, the, the realm of public service is packed full of unbelievers. It's dominated in most cases by unbelievers. How desperately needed then for the calling of um, Christians in that realm to serve for the good of uh, the entire citizenry. And this becomes particularly important when we remember one of the special responsibilities of the civil authorities that we haven't yet mentioned. And it comes from 1 Timothy 2, 
which is to guarantee freedom of religion. So the civil authority under God is to use the sword to maintain justice and peace so that above all other things, there is freedom for the gospel. The greatest good uh, a civil governor can do is to facilitate the worship, witness and testimony of the churches to the power of Christ. Um, and, and this is what we've seen so many believers do down through the centuries, isn't it? You look at Joseph uh, in Genesis or look at um, Mordecai in Esther or you look at Daniel, Shirach, Mishach and Abednego uh, in, in, uh, in uh, Daniel's prophecy. These men served pagan rulers, basically, didn't they? They served those who worship false gods. Uh, and the scriptures commends them for it. <laughs> and uh, in some cases, certainly the case of Daniel and his three friends, they suffered for it too. But they did what was right and they brought so much good. And if you look at the history, certainly in my country, men like Oliver Cromwell, who defended religious liberty, he was the first ruler of our country to make it uh, for f freedom for Baptists to worship. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have Cromwell to thank for that. Or, or men like uh, William Wilberforce, who who uh, fought against the slave trade, or Lord Shaftesbury, who fought the rights of workers and so on. These are Christians who exercised authority in the civil realm to do good. So that, that's what we see, really, uh, when we're talking about uh, the calling of a godly magistrate. It's got nothing to do with mingling together the uh, church and the state at all in our Baptist ecclesiology, they're absolutely distinct. So with the civil government's part of their job description being promoting of the good, I think at least here in America, there's been over the last several years, a growing uh, desire to see the civil government promote what is good because of all the stuff that's going on. I mean, it seems like they're promoting what's evil instead of promoting what's good oftentimes. And so the question has become, does that mean that the civil government should also promote uh, the, a Protestant church, you know, just generally? So it, it, they would say, is there some sense in which promoting the good means promoting certain worship of God or religious things? So you go, you roll back the clock when everything was actually closed on the Sabbath. Um, is that something that the civil government should be enacting uh, certain laws like that to promote uh, the the establishment of good morals, the natural law, those sort of things. And I think one of the terms that is often coming up now is the civil government as a nursing father, at least in our context here in America, of thinking that the civil government should return to that. That is what the magisterial reformers thought. And you, I see several Baptists now wanting to claim that they're magisterial Baptists in that sense, that they want the civil government to do those things. So is that part of what it means for the civil government to promote what is good or are these things separate or the, how, how should that look? Yeah, I, it's a very good question, Jordan. And I think it's one we need to think about very, very carefully. Confessionally speaking, um, we would want to make a distinction between the, um, the, the, the two tables of the law, between the first table of the law 
and the second table of the law. And the civil authority needs to concern itself particularly with the second table of the law directly and only with the first table of the law in the sense of um, establishing the freedom and the right of the churches to govern themselves in that regard. So let me clarify what I mean. We, we want the, to use your terminology of nursing father, we, we want the civil authority to be a nursing father in the sense that they should promote um, the authority of parents over children and the, the fostering of stable family life. They should promote and defend the, the um, sanctity of all human life whether it's a baby in the womb or whether it's a disabled person or whether it's a, uh, an elderly person. Yes, it is the responsibility of civil government to, to reject all calls to, for euthanasia, to reject all uh, right to abortion. It is the civil government's authority to do the, uh, responsibility to do that. And it's their responsibility to promote and defend and and foster stable marriages between one man and one woman for life and so on and so on to to prohibit stealing and 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 lying and to encourage contentment rather than covetousness these these this is the role of of the civil authority they are to defend the nation against external attack and to establish law and order and righteousness and justice and so on as we've said <coughs> that is the direct responsibility of the civil authority and they know that because God calls them to it and it's very interesting isn't it in scripture how God does speak directly to kings and rulers you get that in proverbs you get that in, in some of the psalms like psalm 2 psalm 2 uh, where where God directly addresses kings and those in authority it's very interesting so they can learn from the scriptures but they can also learn from nature itself and our confession is clear God wrote the law of God on the heart of Adam in the Garden of Eden right in the beginning. So what was written on Sinai wasn't written for the first time. It was rewritten. Uh, it was reestablished. So these laws and uh, Romans 2, 14 and 15, the, the, the Gentiles, the unbelievers know that these things are true. So they're to concern themselves directly with the second table of the law. But then, as they say, only indirectly with the first table. What do I mean by that? Well, they are not to decide what true worship looks like. The civil authorities are not to decide that Protestantism is right and Romanism is wrong. That's not their job. It's not their job to say Presbyterianism is the way and the Baptists have it wrong. That's not the job of the civil authority. The civil authority's job is to establish. And I think historically in the States, you, you have a much better idea of this than we do. Um, is to establish freedom for the duly appointed authority in the spiritual realm to determine those things. So as we move on from chapter 24, which is of, uh, of the civil authority, to chapter 26, which is of the church, what do we have in paragraph four? The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling institution, order or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. And to whom has Christ given that power over the spiritual realm? 
not the civil authority, but as we read in paragraph seven of chapter 26, to each of these churches thus gathered according to his mind declared in his word, he has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on of that order in worship and discipline, which he has instituted for them. So Christ gives all authority in relation to the first table of the law. What is the God that we worship? How do we understand him? Is he triune or not? How do we understand the nature of the triunity of God? Who is the true and living God? What is idolatry? How do we define it? What does it mean to worship him on the Sabbath? Which is the Sabbath day? How do we go about doing it? All of that is given to the church in the scriptures. And the civil authority has no business in that realm at all. And that really was the problem, wasn't it, in, in COVID season, that the civil authority muscled in where they had no place. Now, by all means, they can come to the churches and they can make recommendations and they can say in the civil realm, for example, we're going to shut all these shops and shut all these businesses. And this is why. And we want you to know and we want you to consider. But it is never it cannot be their prerogative to say you must not gather for worship. You must not sing. You must wear this or not wear that or put up this or not put up that. That cannot be because in the spiritual, by all means, they can do that in the supermarket, shops, hospitals. That's their realm. But not not in the churches. And, and, and this is where Christians went wrong. They said, oh, well, because it's the same everywhere, then we've got to apply it in the churches. No, you haven't. The church is distinct. The church is distinct. And while there are civil rules that apply in the church. So, for example, if a minister of the gospel in the church is beating the children in the children's class, then that is a matter for the civil authorities, because that's that's a breach of the civil law, isn't it? He has no right to do that. So it's quite right for the church to hand over that minister to the civil authorities and say, you need to prosecute this guy who's beating the children. But so, so you know, people talk about overlap of jurisdiction. I don't see it. That's not an overlap. That's a breach of the civil jurisdiction. But it, but but the point is, what do they have a right to speak on? Second table of the law? Yeah, they have a right. But they don't have a right to speak on what we should or shouldn't be doing on the Lord's day, whether we should or shouldn't be gathering. That's not their realm. Mm. A very helpful distinction. So another, I guess, to follow up on that specific question. So when it comes to like matters of public health, I think that seems like what people who would push back on it would say, well, the civil government ha should be promoting the health of the public. And therefore that would extend to gathering for worship because you could be harming people physically. I mean, I guess number one is the government responsible for public health. And then number two, is that really, do they have the ability to say, look, if you have a disease of some sort and you gather, you're going to kill that person because you're spreading it or something like that. Would that be a sort of justification they could use? Good question, Jordan. I think in your first question, do they have a responsibility for public health? My answer to that would be to, to a degree, to a degree, insofar as public health um, relates to their primary responsibility, which is justice and peace. So if, for example, you've got a scenario in which 
there is a real disease that is doing the rounds. Let's say, let's say it's 1350 and, and the Black Death is spreading and 80% of the population are dying. And um, you have a scenario in which the rich and the wealthy are able to escape. They can get away because they got the money and, and, and they can get in their planes, their helicopters, their boats, whatever, and off they go. And the people who are left behind are the poor. This seems to me to be a good example where where the civil authority would have the responsibility to step in and say, no, you, you that, that this is inequitable. Everybody has the right to life and everybody has the right to to. Um, you know, we, we have a responsibility as a civil authority to defend the lives of everybody. You know, this this is the second table of the law, isn't it? So to say there are no circumstances in which we could envisage the civil authority having the right to rule on these matters. I, I, I can't go there because I can envisage circumstances in which that would be right. Um, however, however. Uh, it became very, very clear in March of 2020 very quickly that that was not the situation it didn't take three months to work that out just a couple of weeks really to realize that was not the scenario at all and so yes there is a public health issue but do the governing authorities have the right to uh, command everybody that they need to have a particular needle stuck in their arm or wherever and have something put in them no they do not that's an infringement of the liberty of the individual, do they then have the right to restrict their freedom of movement on the basis of that? No, they don't. And do they have the right on the basis of that very low threshold of, of testing uh, to say you shouldn't be meeting? And the answer, I think, that became clear very quickly, certainly in the UK, we had two lockdowns. We had one in March, April, May of 20, and then a second one in November. Once we got to the November one, it was clear that it was illegitimate. That wasn't right. They should not be doing that. And once we got our ducks in a row, our theological ducks in a row, and we, and we understood where we, where we were, we should have been saying, no, this, this is not right. You, you don't have the right. And I think, again, even in the case of um, very, very serious public health issues, um, it, it should still be a question of the civil authorities consulting with and requesting the churches rather than commanding them. Because at the end of the day, the elders of the churches and the churches themselves, because we believe in congregationalism, will answer to God for the decisions they make with regard to worship, not the civil authorities. Um, so, so an illustration I've given folk here is, you know, if there's a if there's a bomb threat, for example, or, or some terrorist threat, then by all means, the civil authorities can make the elders of the churches aware. But if the elders decide we're going to meet anyway, despite the threat, then that's the prerogative of the church to do that. So that would be a kind of a nuanced position uh, on that matter. That that's helpful though. So one thing I want to know are: Do you have any other resources for those who are interested in? They find your book helpful. Do you have resources that you have other than this book, or do you have plans to write anything else to make available? Yeah, I, I Jordan, I I am just a pastor here, um, getting on with my pastoral ministry. I, I, I'm not a 
you know, I'm not a, a theologian I, I, and I don't claim to be. So what I've provided here is a resource that was use, useful to our church. In that sense, of course, I am a theologian in, in this, sorry, wrong terminology there, correct result. I am a public theologian. I, I make known the truths of God, but I'm not an academic theologian, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So I don't have the, the time, the luxury to spend many days and hours studying these things over and above the demands of, of my ministry here. So no, I don't have plans for any more, but I would, picking up on something you said at the beginning, I would warmly commend to your readers the whole confession of faith and a careful study of it. And um, in that regard, there is a new book coming out by my good friend, Professor James Renahan, uh, and his book, which is, I believe, going to be published in the States very soon, um, is an exposition of the Second London Confession. And uh, I do warmly commend that to, to your readers. It should be out soon. Uh, pick that up and, and that will reward careful study very much. Yeah, anything uh, Dr. Renahan writes, I, I commend that. So I, I am confident it's going to be awesome. And I do think, I think that's coming through Founders Ministry Press. Yeah, so. yeah. although Broken Wolf, I think, have plans to publish in the UK as well. Uh, and, and you can pick up, by the way, a copy of my book if you want to, just by going on to the Broken Wolf website. And uh, we do have distributor in the United States. So uh, if you just go on the Broken Wolf website, click on the icon under God over people, and then click on the United States. Um, I, I want a copy because, you know, sending to the States and it will come from the States. So the, the carriage isn't silly. Uh, that's that's all set up there for you. Tremendous. Well, thank you, number one, for writing this book, for taking the time away from uh, your ministry to dedicate to providing this resource to others beyond your local church, because I think this will benefit a lot of people. So thank you for doing this, and thanks for chatting with us. I think this has been encouraging on a number of levels, Number, I mean, just the topic, but also because we're talking about um, the just nature of the confession and how that works. So we appreciate you for taking the time. And uh, everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.